Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 36 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. If you're just joining me and this is your first time listening, I am a family physician and obesity medicine physician, and I am a weight loss coach for physicians who are struggling with their own weight. So I bring my background of obesity medicine knowledge as well as coaching skills that I've developed and learned, and my personal experience of walking through this myself and having lost and maintained 55 pounds of weight loss I bring all of those to this podcast and the topics that I talk about, as well as the coaching that I do one-on-one with private clients. And so if you feel that you just can't figure out your weight, that you've kind of got everything else under control in your life, but your weight or eating particular foods or feeling out of control around eating is the one thing that you haven't figured out then coaching is a really good tool that can help you change your relationship with the food and change how you think about food and your weight to the point that you have a sense of freedom and a sense of control that you probably haven't experienced before where you can more easily stick to your eating plan without all the feelings of deprivation and uh, feeling like you're really exerting a lot of willpower to do that. Uh, And so if that sounds like something that could be helpful for you, uh, go over to my website, weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca, click on the work with me tab. And on there, you can schedule an introductory coaching session. And that gives us a chance to just chat about how I could best help you um, and talk about what my one on one coaching looks like and how it might benefit you. Okay, today I have a really interesting guest that I'm quite excited to have on the podcast. Dr. Georgia Ede is with me today. Uh, Dr. Georgia Ede is a psychiatrist who now does mainly nutrition-based treatments. And she's a well-known speaker about the impact of our diet with our mental health, uh, which I think is really applicable to physician population. Um, physician mental health is a big topic and it's something that I know a lot of us struggle with or have struggled with at some point in our careers. Uh, one of our recent episodes, we talked about burnout, which I think relates as well. But if we can take care of ourselves through and improve things like our mental health through what we eat, then we can improve so many other aspects of our life. So if through changing what we eat and eating a healthier diet improves our mental health, makes us slightly less anxious, makes our mood a little bit better. It then makes our enjoyment of work better. Uh, It helps if you're feeling uh, burnt out. It makes our interactions with patients better. And so there's a lot of um, kind of domino effect that can happen when you just make a simple change, like change the fuel that's going into your body and you start to see some of the positive outcome from that. And I think that's why Georgia is such a fascinating person to talk to, uh, to get uh, really good science-based information about how that happens. If you want more information about Dr. Ede, you can find her at diagnosisdiet.com. And her Twitter handle is at Georgia Ede, spelled E-D-E-M-D. 
I think an important note that Dr. Eid makes in this interview is the importance of consulting with somebody knowledgeable if you're on medications and you're making significant dietary changes. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. If you are on any sort of diabetes medications, hypertensive medications, um, how changing your diet and cutting out the sugar and the processed carbohydrates is such a powerful therapeutic tool that it really can change things like your blood pressure and your blood sugars very rapidly and medications need to be monitored so they can be adjusted appropriately. Um, and sometimes that means they need to be adjusted quite quickly. So don't make any major dietary changes without consulting with your doctor. And Dr. Ede in this interview extends that to psychiatric medications. So if you're on antidepressants or other medications for mental health, it's important to make sure that they're adjusted or managed appropriately. Um, and she makes reference to an article that is available online for free that she's written either on Psychology Today or DietDoctor.com, which is called Ketogenics, Diets, and Psychiatric Medications. And so if that applies to you, I would suggest you look up that article, but also make sure you talk to your doctor before making significant changes. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the show, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Siobhan. Uh, so what I was thinking we could start with is if you wanted to just tell our listeners, some of them might not know of you yet, uh, just a little bit about yourself and what your background is. Uh, sure. So I am a conventionally trained psychiatrist. I uh, medical school in Vermont and, and uh, psychiatry residency training at Cambridge Hospital, which is part of the Harvard training system. And of course, as all of all of my fellow physicians know, we got almost no nutrition education during that time. So maybe two or three <laughs> medical school. And here in the United States, it's four years of medical school, and then four years of psychiatry residency training. And during the four years of psychiatry training, we didn't speak about food once. Uh, so, um, so, you know, I practiced conventionally uh, um, psychopharm and psychotherapy for years in many different types of settings, hospital settings, um, uh, public clinic settings, community clinics, and private practices, and ultimately uh, university health services where I spent a lot of uh, my time, uh, six or seven years in the Harvard University Health Service as psychopharm and nutrition consultant, and um, in five years at Smith College, which is a private women's college in Massachusetts, uh, psychopharm and nutrition consultation. Um, and now I just do private nutrition consultation online for fellow fellow clinicians and as well as you know um, all kinds of people around the world trying to help people incorporate nutrition uh, science and uh, uh, into in, in, and practice into their into their mental and physical health goals. And mm -hmm. so it's been a really fascinating career so far, but, but, but I didn't start off understanding anything about nutrition. And so like a lot of women who grew up with a weight problem my whole life, I just thought of food as a way to control my weight. I never ever thought about the connection between food and mental health. I was not taught anything about that. And uh, so I practiced conventionally for a number of years. And then uh, in my early 40s, I'm now 54. In my early 40s, over 10 years ago, I started developing all of these mysterious syndromes that none of my doctors could help me with. And these are all smart, caring, Harvard-affiliated doctors. So I was having symptoms of chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and IBS and migraines and 
it, I was just really falling apart. And uh, despite following the diet that we're all told is healthy and exercising religiously and running and going to the gym and, you know, high fiber, low fat and all of that. And so uh, uh, in any case, I was left to my own devices because nobody could help me with these things. And so because part of the symptoms had to do with IBS type symptoms, I thought, well, maybe if I change my diet, it might help. So I just started experimenting uh, with my diet. I uh, kept a food and symptom journal over about six months and uh, tried to eliminate things that I thought might be bothering me. And what I ended up with after about six months was this very strange, mostly meat diet with almost with very few plants in it, very low fiber, no dairy products. It was all, I was already low carb at that point to tr control my weight. So, but what was interesting to me about this, so after six months, all of these syndromes disappeared, which mm. took me completely by surprise. I thought, well, maybe the stomach pain will improve a little bit. That's really all I was hoping for. But everything, everything went away. And then beyond that, even though I never thought of myself as struggling significantly with mental health issues, my mood was a lot better. Uh, I was a lot less anxious. You know, I just thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm a keyed up doctor, like all of us are kind of stressed out and uh, obsessive types and perfectionistic types, but I was a lot more uh, calmer, a lot less uh, prone to stress. And in the winter time, because I live in Massachusetts, not quite as Northern as all of you, <laughs> up there, but, you know, in the winter time, my mood would kind of sink and it would start in September, October, and it would start to lift, you know, in the spring. And I thought that was just normal <laughs> or maybe a little season, touch of something seasonal. But all of that went away too. And my concentration was better. My mood, my energy, my sleep, everything was so much better. And I thought this diet that I'm eating is affecting my mental health. And mm -hmm. this diet that I'm eating has improved all of these symptoms that have been so tough for me and my fellow physicians who would refer to me uh, on all of these syndromes that all of my, many of my middle-aged patients were struggling with that nobody could help them with, including me. I wasn't able to help people with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and I could, I could prescribe medications, but those never really helped that much. And so I thought, I wonder if there's something, what, what is going on here? <laughs> Why is this diet improving not just my body, but my brain? And as a psychiatrist, I became fascinated with that and just started studying nutrition for the very first time and uh, uh, just learning everything I could, going to the primary literature, learning everything I could about nutrition and the brain uh, and the body, but, but specifically the brain and, and thought, well, maybe I could help my patients by incorporating some of this information that I'm learning into my work with them. Because, you know, all of us work with patients where, you know, medications don't work or medications only work a little bit or we, were, we don't want to take medication. And so what if there's actually something else to offer people, either in combination with medication or instead of medication? And so that's been my passion now for, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years now. So um, that's a long answer to your question, but that's how I got here. And so what sort of, by using this in your practice back when you, when you were still... Um, in your psychiatry practice, what sort of results did you see? How was that different from your conventional approaches? Yeah, I know, and I'm still doing it now, just in a different format, but uh, it's been really, it's really, re this is the thing about being a doctor, right, is that it can be very frustrating to treat chronic problems that don't seem to have a solution. And a lot of what psychiatrists spend their time doing is just after you've exhausted 
uh, with, with more stubborn conditions, after you've exhausted all the medication and therapy options you have, really what you're just doing is meeting with that person on a regular basis to sit with them and help them learn to tolerate the chronicity of the problem. And, that, and that's very important and it's helpful, but it's still frustrating on both sides to really understand and realize, oh my gosh, there's nothing else we can do. So we're just going to have to live with this together and uh, accept this kind of radical acceptance, right? Like let's accept the fact that this is a chronic condition. But when I started incorporating these principles in my practice, some of these chronic conditions started to improve. And that was so heartening to me. I mean, that made me feel so excited about going to work every day and thinking, I wonder, um, you know, what might be possible today? <laughs> you know, if for people who are open to changing their diet, it's really remarkable what you can see. And because you're getting at the root causes, you're getting at the inflammation, you're getting at the oxidation, you're getting at the metabolic dysfunction of the brain, the insulin resistance of the blood brain barrier, you're at the nutrient deficiencies, you're getting at the core of what's driving a lot of these really common mental health problems in the first place. And so that is, as you can probably hear in my voice, that's really exciting to me. And when people get better from bipolar disorder, from ADHD, from PTSD, from generalized anxiety disorder, from chronic depression, that is just really wow. excited to get up in the morning. Uh, it's a lot of fun and it's really empowering. And especially because some of those disorders don't really respond that well to medication or the medication carries large side effects with them, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, bipolar who's controlled well on medications often has a lot of weight gain related to those medications or feels an element of sedation or, you know, they often complain of, of what they experience with them. Yes. And, you know, doctors take these medicines too. And so, you know, sexual dysfunction, weight gain, feeling uh, blah, you know, having that sort of apathy that can come along with some of the antidepressants, fatigue, sleep problems, weight gain. Um, and for some of these medications, uh, uh, particularly the antipsychotic medications, which are now being used for everything, they're being used for anxiety disorders, they're being used for sleep problems, they're being used for treatment-resistant depression, they're being used as for everything. And these medications cause insulin resistance. They raise insulin levels, they raise blood sugar levels, they cause metabolic syndrome, and that can over time worsen, paradoxically, the underlying condition. And so, um, you know, these medications are not medications that people enjoy taking. Mm -hmm. So uh, wonderful to have alternatives. Um, yeah. And so what, uh, you kind of touched on a few of the things just uh, in your last bit, but what is it about the food and what we eat that can impact our mood? Great. So, um, so the modern, the, the modern processed foods diet in the, really the signature ingredients of the modern dangerous sort of standard American diet or no standard Western diet, uh, Canadian too, um, are refined carbohydrates and, uh, vegetable oils. Uh, and we almost, we no no processed refined vegetable oils prior to, I don't know, it was 60, 70 years ago. Um, and refined carbohydrates were a small percentage of our diet up until, uh, you know, the last um, hundred years. And so those ingredients are now in every, almost every processed and prepared food available in the grocery store and in restaurants and in food bars and, you know, everywhere, everywhere you go. 
those ingredients, refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils, promote very powerfully inflammation and oxidation. Um, they also, uh, the, the refined carbohydrates promote insulin resistance, and the, uh, even the refined seed oils are thought to contribute to insulin, in, insulin resistance. And so we're eating these ingredients three, four, five, six times a day, every single day. Um, and that promotes inflammation oxidation throughout the body and brain. And those are known to be root causes of most chronic diseases, including most chronic psychiatric disorders. And I think the insulin resistance piece is interesting because most people, like a lot of physicians, think of insulin resistance solely as diabetes and maybe, you know, PCOS. But can you talk a bit about insulin resistance in the brain? Yes. So it is, it's a little different in the brain than it is in the rest of the body. And I find this fascinating. So, you know, in the body, insulin is required, uh, sort of works to unlock muscle cells and fat cells to let glucose in, for example. Uh, glucose can't just waltz into a fat cell or, or muscle cell. It has to be insulin mediated. Uh, so, um, but in the brain, it's different because so the brain uh, requires such a, a high, uh, um, a constant supply of glucose. It, it, much of the brain can run on ketones, but but there are parts of the brain that can only run on glucose. So the brain requires 24-7 access to a certain uh, flow of glucose at all times. And uh, so the brain puts up no barriers to glucose coming in. There, the, the receptors on the blood-brain barrier that uh, allow glucose to come in, which are GLUT1 receptors, these do not require insulin. So glucose has no trouble going into the brain. Um, and glucose, uh, the glucose uh, level in the brain is always exactly 60% of what it is in the bloodstream. So if your blood sugar is 100, your brain sugar will be 60. That's how I explain it to people. Um, so it's proportional. It's, it's, it's uh, a gradient driven, concentration gradient driven. So um, no problem getting glucose into the brain, even though all of my patients and students worry about, oh, I'm not going to have enough sugar to feed my brain. We have to work with insulin resistance is that insulin resistance causes the receptors on the surface of the blood-brain barrier to become insulin resistant. And therefore, insulin has a harder and harder time crossing the blood-brain barrier and entering the brain. And that's a huge problem because uh, you can't process, the brain can't process glucose without insulin. And so what you can have uh, in uh, chronic or more severe, excuse me, chronic or more severe cases of insulin resistance is you can have glucose flowing, you can have brain cells swimming in a sea of glucose and they're still starving to death because there isn't enough insulin. And that is the primary driver of, of most cases of Alzheimer's disease, is that the brain is dying, dying of an energy deficit caused by primarily in most cases, uh, to a large extent, insulin resistance of the blood-brain barrier. So it's like that old saying for type 1 diabetes, starving in the midst of plenty is the situation in the brain. So there's, there's sugar, but the insulin, even though there's insulin in the body, the insulin's not getting to the brain to let the brain use the sugar. That's a great quote. I, the, thank you for putting it that way. That sums it up perfectly. Interesting. I, I find that fascinating. <laughs> like, you know, it's just so different from what we are taught in medical school about the root causes of things like dementia. Uh, it, they now call dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, type 3 diabetes. And yeah. uh, this, is, this, uh, this expression was coined, that term was coined by Dr. Suzanne de Lamont at uh, Brown University, who's been studying Alzheimer's for many, many years. And she coined that phrase in 2008, I believe, maybe even earlier than that. 
but mm. it, it, that term has spread. Uh, and now a lot of researchers refer to it as type three diabetes. Yeah, interesting. So when you're working with people, um, it, like I know you eat close to a um, carnivore diet, uh, but it, where do you try to get people to sit on carbohydrate intake? Do you find most people need to go that strict or can they respond to more liberal, lower carb uh, approaches? Oh, I love this question. So this is, uh, this is what I spend all of my time doing in, in my consult services help, is, is helping, helping people figure out where they need to be on the carbohydrate spectrum. It depends on what they want, first of all. Obviously, <laughs> uh, go with their goals, but, uh, but everyone's per personal carbohydrate tolerance is different, as you know. And so there are some people who don't need to be low carb. There are some people, if they don't have damaged carbohydrate metabolism, if they don't have insulin resistance, if they're lucky enough to be one of the minority, um, they may be, do just fine with whole food sources of carbohydrate, meaning fruits and vegetable sources of, of carbohydrate, um, not the grains and the sugars and the flours and things like that. But uh, you know, the sort of what I call the pre-agricultural whole foods, the sort of more paleo uh, carbohydrate sources are probably safe for people who don't have insulin resistance. But if you have insulin resistance, as most of us do to some extent now, um, then you have to figure out what your personal carbohydrate tolerance is. And that depends on your gender, your age, your degree of carbohydrate uh, metabolism damage. Um, it also depends on your activity level and those sorts of things. But it's what I recommend is if people don't want to try to sort all that out because it can be complicated, just go to 20 grams per day of carbohydrate and start there and either work your way up or down as needed. But 20 grams of carbohydrate is where I usually start unless someone's an athlete uh, or unless I know that they don't have a lot of metabolic damage if they're young and metabolically flexible. You know, but it, as you know, in your practice, I'm sure too, in your consult service, it, it is individualized. And so it depends on what the wants, what they're ready to do, and what their personal history is. But for most people out there listening, if you, you know, are trying to, you know, if you want to try a low carbohydrate diet, that's where I would start. And of course, if you're taking medications, it's really important to not to just jump onto a ketogenic diet or a, carb, a low carb diet, because it can affect your medication levels. You've got to work around the medications. But for everybody else, um, you know, that's a reasonable starting point. Excellent. So that brings me to an area that I'm really interested in is how, how do you help people who are suffering with mental health challenges? How do you help them actually make those changes? Because so often the highly processed, highly sugared foods are playing some role in their coping mechanisms, or at least that's what I find. How do you help them have the motivation and stuff to make those initial changes. Uh, thank you for asking that. Cause I know that's a large part of what, what your work is too in your coaching practice. Um, uh, this is, this is the, the big, big problem, right? And so um, these foods, particularly the refined carbohydrates are extraordinarily addictive and they're, they've been shown in uh, studies to be more addictive than cocaine. And so for people to imagine even giving them up is often a, a impossible thing to think. And this is the major barrier that I had working with college students for many, many years. Uh, I had plenty of students and, and faculty and staff when I worked at Harvard as well, um, uh, patients who understood completely everything I was saying about why it made sense to make these changes. And yet that, of course, the information wasn't enough, right? You know that mm -hmm. the information 
not enough. This is, uh, you're trying to fight an emotional problem with logic <laughs> and you can't reason your way out of an addiction. It just has to be broken. It has to be broken. You may need support. You may need professional help. You may need many, many times trying, practicing and failing. Just mm -hmm. like any, any new behavior, you need to practice it. Um, I think that's a fantastic point. Learn from your mistakes. Don't beat yourself up. Say, okay, what can I do better next time? What can I do differently next time? Um, I, I myself have a lot of personal experience with this. I grew up overweight, um, addicted to all kinds of you know, food, especially carbohydrates, especially starches for me, not as much sugars, but starches. And so um, I know what this is like, and it's a lifelong, <laughs> this is the thing that's so hard to say and, and understand. It's a lifelong problem that does not go away. It mm -hmm. just is managed. It's managed with diet. And when you figure out the diet that helps free you of those cravings um, and the practices that help you free you of those cravings, you have to practice that every single day for the rest of your life. And that's the sad truth. Mm -hmm. And that's when you're standing kind of at the cusp of it, that can be a hard thing to picture, right? Uh, like when you're embroiled in that sugar addiction or um, uh, eating a lot of those foods, it can be really hard to picture a life without it. And yet on the other side, it is often, it feels so much better. Like I see that a lot with the patients I work with and the people I work with. Um, exactly right. And, and it's, I, you know, a lot of it has to do with helping people uh, understand that it's a temporary, uh, a very short lived, if, if the diet's constructed properly, um, the cravings can go away rather quickly if you know how to design the diet properly. Um, but there is this miserable period of withdrawal. It's miserable. Mm -hmm. And it can, for some people, it's a day or two. For some people, it's three, four, five. Some people, it's several weeks. But it's temporary. And getting to the other side is so worth it. Um, it when you're on the other side, <laughs> you can't imagine being back where you were before. And it's like two different mindsets. Um, when you're in that using phase of using these foods, you can't imagine not using them. When you're not using them, you can't imagine going back to using them again. And yet almost all of us go back and forth constantly because it's so hard to stay on the right path because these foods are everywhere. We are inundated with messages and pictures and images and sounds about these foods. When we go to other people's homes, when we're traveling, when we're in restaurants, when we're at work. When we're at work, there are bowls of M&Ms and things in the, in the staff room, um, all kinds of, every day you will be challenged multiple times. And it takes a lot of strength and practice and support to, to get this right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good thing that sometimes when people are looking at low carb stuff and things like that on the web, I think they, they miss, or maybe people don't talk openly about it that, I think there's very few people that are truly 100% never waver, never have slips or whatever you want to call them. Uh, that, you know, most people do s still at times eat the sugar, or eat the starch. Uh, but the key, the magic is finding the skill set on how to just get back. Like when you do make that decision to eat something that's sugary how to just get back to your regular instead of making that the big slide, which, you know, so often happens, right? I thank you for saying that. So I think, you know, I don't know how many of us and <clears throat> how many of us in the low carbon nutrition space, quote unquote, cheat on our diets. I hate that word, by the way, but mm -hmm. um, 
how many of us are human and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, stray from our chosen path, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, but uh, I think most of us do, and I certainly do. Um, and uh, that's just par for the course. I mean, addiction comes with relapse and relapse is just something you get better and better and better at managing so that, you know, in the past, I might've strayed for weeks or months in my early years. It was just so hard to get back on track. And now if I, if I have a problem, if I'm traveling and I fall off my plan, um, uh, you know, it, it just takes me a few days now. Um, and I'm practicing trying to have just be one day. Uh, it's very difficult. And so um, it's something that I'm actively working on myself, but so much better. And I will say that for some of us, and uh, for some of us, uh, eliminating the carbohydrates completely uh, or almost virtually completely with a carnivore diet for me has been a godsend because for me, even a certain amount of carbohydrate in whole plant foods will be enough to trigger cravings for more carbohydrate. So I have never, never been able to stay um, as true to a diet before as I have with carnivore. I've been able to go up to six or seven months without a single day of straying. And that, that was never possible for me before. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, do you, when you're talking to people who you feel have addiction, do you generally subscribe to the uh, abstinence like do obviously like you said sometimes you relapse but approach it to try to maintain abstinence as much as possible it really depends on the person so if there's a huge addictive component and people have so a lot of people will will consult with me and say well i'm really interested in doing a, a, a keto diet um uh, you know some people consult with me for carnivore obviously but uh, most of the people that consult with me consult with me about ketogenic diets for, for mental health disorders primarily and so they'll say, okay, I, I'm willing to try this, um, but I can't, just the idea of, for example, not having ice cream again, um, just sounds impossible. So can I have it once a month? And so now you hear the bargaining coming in, right? <laughs> so I can just, could I just have it once a month? And we'll talk about that as, okay, well, this is definitely a bargaining chip, right? This is your brain saying, this is the addiction talking saying, can I still have that? And the answer is, I don't know. You'll have to find out. Like if you're the kind of person who can take one day off and get right back on, then maybe mm. you can do that. Maybe, maybe that will help you keep the diet sustainable. But for many of us, one day becomes a week, becomes a month. And if you're that kind of person, it may not be a good idea for you to, um, you know, to, try, to try that plan. Um, but there really are, I find, generally speaking, two groups of people, the kind of um, people who can do it and people who can't do it. And I don't know what the difference is between those people, but they know who they are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I find personally even one decision, which at the time can feel just very isolated, like, oh, I'm just going to make this one decision and then continue on. But that one decision then makes it easier to make other decisions, you know, later in the week. And then it, like it can build so sneakily, <laughs> essentially like that little, the brain craving and the brain decision-making can shift just so subtly and easily. And all of a sudden you're at like, oh, well now I'm, I'm eating fairly liberal low carb again and I need to 
actually, you know, really focus down on getting back on track. Uh, and it feels sometimes like that you just blink and that happens. Uh, <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, like where, where was this? And when I trace it back, when I look with kind of curiosity about, okay, how did this happen? It always is just like one decision that it was like, yeah, you know, I'll just have this, whatever, this once and then everything else will be okay. But I think what it is, is it just sets off some of those, the brain craving cycles again. It does. And I don't know, uh, Siobhan, have you ever heard of Joan Ifland? Are you familiar with her? No. So she uh, specializes in food addiction. Uh, she's a PhD and an MBA. I just heard her. I was only recently became aware of her work. Uh, she has a free, several free videos on, on YouTube. Um, I-F-L-A-N-D. She is just so incredibly knowledgeable about food addiction and how that works. And she has some wonderful uh, suggestions about how to, you know, how to, uh, how to move past because it's not just, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just the information. So all of us as physicians, we think we'll just give the people the information and they'll just run with it. But of course we all know that doesn't work that way. Um, um, there's a huge emotional component and a social component, psychological component um, that needs to be dealt with. And so um, she, she addresses that. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really, uh, I think so important that the other pieces are in place, you know, because a lot of us doctors, and I was like this for years, I would think, well, why do they keep doing this? I've given them the information. Why don't they just follow these instructions? Um, be great if everybody did, right? It'd be so easy. All of us would be cured. <laughs> Ourselves too. Like Ourselves too. Um, so, uh, you know, and why is, now I know, I feel as though I know an awful lot about nutrition. Um, there's always more to learn. I'm learning every day, but I know a lot about nutrition that doesn't spare me from the occasional, um, falling off of my plan. I mean, it's just, it's not about understanding. It's about something else entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's really good to talk about openly because I see so much black and white thinking, right? Like people, um, I see it with my patients and, and with the people I coach with that, you know, you're only doing it right if you're doing it perfectly. Yeah. And I think as much as we can let go of that and recognize that nobody's perfect, nobody does it perfectly, and you just do it the best you can and you do it the best, see if you can do it a little bit better the next day, um, that's a much more sustainable uh, way of approaching nutrition than just very black and white. I thousand percent agree. And when I first, that was one of the mistakes I made when I first started incorporating nutrition work into my conventional practice. This was a long time ago. Um, I was still working at the Harvard University Health Service at the time. And I remember giving people these food lists and giving them information and being so disappointed or frustrated when they would come back <laughs> a couple <laughs> of weeks later and they, <laughs> they weren't doing what I had suggested would be helpful. And uh, I mean, how arrogant is that, right? And, and how clueless is that? But I just didn't have any experience. I had no training, no training in addiction, no training in nutrition. Where I'm, I'm not trained as a dietitian. I had no idea what it was like to, uh, I mean, it's easy to tell somebody to take a medication, right? Here, take this medication. And uh, they come back and nine times out of 10, they're taking the medication. Because taking medication is extremely easy. Mm -hmm. um, and, but nine times out of 10, you give people nutrition advice, nine times out of 10 that you come back, they are not following the advice because it's hard. It's really hard. 
to make those kinds of behavioral changes and you need to incorporate motivational interviewing and you need to incorporate psychotherapy and you need to you know uh, assess support systems you need to do all these kind and talk about addiction talk about trigger foods talk about um, your history with food talk about your emotional attachment to food and and sometimes you really need to dig into some of those things and and for some people a trauma history will be really uh, a huge barrier to adopting a new diet because as you said earlier uh, food can be an important source a perceived let me put it this way a perceived source of important emotional support um, that, yeah. and it really is when people tell me they they have emotional eating i flip that around in my head it's the eating that's causing the emotions the eating can cause stress, it can cause adrenaline levels to skyrocket, cortisol levels can disrupt your neurotransmitter balance in the brain, disrupts, puts all of your hormones on a roller coaster. And so the eating drives the emotions, which then drives more eating in a vicious cycle. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really... Um because so many people think that that eating is like they recognize it's not helping their weight, but at the core, there's a belief that that eating helps the stress and helps the anxiety or the anger or whatever it is. So it's interesting to view it from the point that it's actually contributing to that. Yeah. And, and what you just said, I'm so glad you said it because it's not that people are lying about this and it's not that it's not true that the eating those foods will very short for a very short period of time mm -hmm. usually a few hours <laughs> will help you feel better just like drinking alcohol will help you feel better briefly and right. then after a few hours as the alcohol starts to wear off or as the carbohydrates start to wear off it's very disruptive to brain chemistry and you're back on that roller coaster again and feeling like you need to have another dose of uh the the poison and so your question about abstinence, I didn't really answer, and it's coming back around again. If you can identify which foods are, uh, are, are triggering those cycles, I think the only way that you're going to have a hope of recovering is removing, is removing them, uh, practicing removing them. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's hard, and you know, because a lot of people with low carb, they'll say, Well, I, some, some people will say to me, Oh, well, I gave up sugar and, and nothing got better. And, you know, if you give up sugar, but you don't give up flour and you don't give up fruit juice and you don't give up all the other things that are sugar, you haven't given up sugar. It's like you've given up Pepsi, but not given up Coke. Hmm. You haven't done anything for yourself. You've made yourself miserable by removing sugar <laughs> and you haven't gotten any benefits. And so you, you, you get frustrated and you give up. So people need the information. They need to understand biochemistry. They need to understand how food works in the body. And doctors are perfectly positioned even though we don't have a lot of good education about it, we can quickly learn the chemistry. It doesn't take that long to help people understand what foods turn into sugar in the body mm -hmm. and what need to be avoided. And that, that'll help most of, most of your patients right there um, is just helping people understand it doesn't need to be sweet to be sugar. Um, all carbohydrates turn into sugar. It's just a matter of how fast they do it and how, how strongly they spike your blood sugar and insulin levels. And teaching people to imagine that happening so that they can understand what's going on does help. It's not the whole battle, 
but giving people information that's, that's accurate is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so it kind of transitioning from there because, um, the flip side of this, right, is so we who, uh, you know, are low-carb believers, if you want to call it that, like we see all the benefit, right? But for somebody who's standing, thinking about, you know, cutting out these grains and stuff, there's so much stuff on the internet and so much stuff in our environment about how that could be harmful to you to not eat those foods or to choose to eat more fat uh, in your diet. And I know that you're very well-versed in the evidence, can you speak a little bit about like where the evidence is for potential harm for eating more fat or eating like you do a, a diet more focused on meat products and things like that? Yeah, sure. So those are the, the two, uh, the two central questions, right? Is it safe to eat fat? Um, is it dangerous to eat meat? Those are the mm -hmm. two things that really have interfered with our health for a very long time because those are myths. Um, there is no credible evidence that uh, uh, fat of any kind, uh, uh, well, any, any natural fat of any kind, let me put it that way, any natural fat from any plant or animal, natural fat is dangerous for us. There is no credible evidence for that. The lion's share of uh, evidence that uh, implicates fats, sp specifically saturated fat or even total fat intake with heart disease or high cholesterol levels or weight gain or any, pick your disease, um, uh, comes from epidemiology, which is, uh, it, it's, it's not even poor evidence. It's, 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 there's no evidence there at all. These questionnaire-based epidemiological studies are, um, what's a polite word to say this? They're useless. Um, they, uh, they've been proved wrong when they're put to the test in clinical trials more than 80% of the time. So you'd be better off flipping a coin than understanding how foods cause diseases by looking at an epidemiological study. They are not scientific experiments. They're questionnaire based guesses and heavily biased at that. So most nutrition headlines, most nutrition studies, unfortunately, continue to this day to be generated using that methodology. Um, so when you look at all of the other types of evidence available, anthropology, botany, uh, physiology, biochemistry, um, uh, you name your, your branch of science, animal husbandry, you name your branch of science, you, can, you will not find any evidence that saturated fat or meat, even red meat, causes any human health problem. And I would challenge anybody out there to find me a study <laughs> that, uh, that uh, seems to show that. If you can find me one, I'm happy to look at it and uh, and and uh, and 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 uh, see if see if there's anything there. But I spent a lot of my time over the past ten years debunking these studies. There just isn't anything there. So it makes no sense, even that it would be, because we've been eating meat and fat for time immemorial. The signature ingredients of the modern diet are not meat and fat. They are sugar. Uh, refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils though that's where the money is if you're trying to get healthier and when you talked about natural fats like fats occurring uh in nature uh you're just to be totally clear you're not referring to vegetable oils in that right vegetable oils are considered a processed fat they are they are highly processed industrially extracted often using chemical solvents it's extremely difficult to turn a pile 
of canola seeds or flax seeds or soybeans into a bottle of oil. Imagine the processing that you need to, to, you need to do to, to create that. Um, so uh, it's, you know, the natural animal fats and the fats from fruits, avocados, olives, um, and uh, uh, palm fruit. Fats from fruits, those are naturally existing fats, um, best, best used when they're in their sort of whole form, you know, in olives or avocados or coconuts or whatever, what have you. Um, but, or, or next best would be cold pressed oils from fruits and nuts, as opposed to industrially extracted seed oils from seeds like soybean, canola, sunflower, safflower, etc. Right. And so the other thing that people worry about when they're looking at lower carb is um, particularly like very low carb, like keto is reducing vegetable content. And they worry that, you know, vegetables and fruit, if you limit them, that can impact your health. Where's the evidence or is there evidence for that question? So that's another uh, excellent uh, question. So uh, a traditional sort of standard ketogenic diet is not low in plant food. Uh, it's low in fruit, very, very low in fruit because fruit's high in sugar, but it's not low in plants in general. Most people who eat a keto diet eat a lot of vegetables and have plenty of fiber in their diet. Um, and there isn't any vitamin or mineral or nutrient that you um, that is exclusively available in fruits. Everything that's available in fruits is also available in vegetables. So removing fruit... Um, will not, if for those who are worried about fiber and nutrients from plants, um, you don't need to worry about that. Just if you worry about that, put veg keep vegetables in your diet. However, and this is where a lot of people think that you know, this is an extreme statement, but I've looked at the science very carefully. There is no evidence that we need plants in our diet. And um, again, all of that evidence comes from epidemiology. They're just a handful of clinical trials trying to demonstrate the benefits of including or increasing the amount of plant foods in the diet, eating more fruits and vegetables. Um, the majority of that handful come out against the fruits and vegetables and, and you know, find that there wasn't the benefit the researchers were hoping to find, or in some cases even find that, that it worsened the situation to, uh, to increase the fruits and vegetables. But I'm really, my main message about this, because I don't Think that everybody needs to eat a carnivore plant-free diet. I think that most people um, do very well in keeping plant foods in their diet. We're adapted to eating most of them. Not the modern ones, not the post-agricultural ones like grains and legumes, but the fruits and vegetables in most cases, we're very well adapted to those. We have mechanisms in our body to either minimally absorb the, the natural toxins that are in them or to uh, rapidly detoxify and eliminate those, those toxins, whether don't absorb them or we, or we rapidly eliminate them from the body. If your immune system and gut system are healthy, you should be able to deal with most plant foods. Um, but if, like most of my, many of us now have, including myself, if you have gut damage, if you have immune system compromise, plant foods, because they defend themselves with natural toxins, this is very well documented in the literature, those toxins can get in and they can bother some people. So um, if you're unhealthy, um, you may need to reduce the amount of plant food in your diet. And in some cases, you may even need to eliminate the plants in your diet. Um, but uh, most people do well with plant foods um, and uh, need to focus primarily on the metabolism. 
uh, by reducing uh, and in some cases even eliminating to a large extent the um, the sugars and flours and the, the carbohydrates because their their carbohydrate metabolism is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've talked about like the limits to some of the evidence that's out there showing harms to the fat and the red meat. What's the state of the evidence showing benefit? Like, so when I've delved into nutrition science, so much of it is epidemiology. Where are we at with uh, randomized controlled trials? Are there many? Uh, For which specific question? Just like, so when I sit and listen to, well, sit and listen, but, you know, look at the, all the discussions back and forth about which diet's best. And, you know, we all have our biases and our opinions, but how, and, and it's often talked about like, well, this evidence is poor and this evidence is poor because of this, but for something like low carb, where are we at with actually having positive, good quality evidence? Oh, with low carb. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of evidence now for low carbohydrate diets, not only for obesity, but also for type 2 diabetes and for epilepsy. Um, Very, very strong uh, uh, um, clinical clinical trial evidence. So, um, uh, and the best, some of the best resources for this are um, Dr. Sarah Hallberg uh, Mm -hmm. has uh, now, uh, has two two years of, um, of data um, reversing the diagnosis of diabetes in uh, a large percentage. I, I don't want to get the number wrong, but is it maybe 60% of people with diabetes were able to lower the amount of uh, medication or, or eliminate their diabetes medications um, and reverse the diagnosis of diabetes uh, by, uh, as, um, as defined by biomarkers. And so that's fantastic evidence. The, there's, there's a great... Uh, uh, the, the Public Health Collaboration UK, PHC UK, um, they uh, keep a list of all the low carbohydrate trial evidence on their website. It's free for everybody to access. You can see all of the clinical trial evidence on their website listed, all the references and the outcomes, uh, all in a table there for any, and, and they keep it updated. So uh, th- there is now more clinical trial evidence in support of. Uh, low carbohydrate diets than there is for any other dietary uh, intervention. So, and, uh, and it now uh, it now exceeds the amount of information you would need to prescribe a medication. Wow. So, it that evidence. It's so fascinating. We, like this is such a big topic that I'm going to just <laughs> skim over. But so fascinating in that you know then the the guidelines are all of our national guidelines still focus on low car or low fat eating as the approach for health. Yes. I just testified at the, the USDA are so down here in the United States, we have the, the USDA and the FDA and they generate these, these guidelines, which many, many places in the rest of the world follow. And I know with the Canadian guidelines just, just updated themselves and they made a little bit of progress in terms of, you know, let's remove the sugar or at least limit the sugar dramatically. Um, but, but just like our guidelines, they still recommend, um, you know, being careful with fat and being careful with meat. And so uh, I just testified down there a couple of weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago, you know, um, it was, it was just so stunning to me to see how many lobbyists were there. Um, Mm -hmm. 
food lobbyists, industry lobbyists. There was somebody there from the potato industry and there was somebody there from soy and there was somebody there from, I mean, it was just, it was just fascinating. There was somebody from the mushroom board. <laughs> it's all very interesting. Um, uh, the person from the potato uh, board was arguing that potatoes have been um, un uh, unfairly maligned as a starchy vegetable when really they're a gateway vegetable to other vegetables. Mm. That was that was the argument. It was fascinating. Um, but in any case, what I said there was, how can I recommend these guidelines when they explicitly recommend refined carbohydrates as part of the daily diet? And they say that half your grains should be whole. Now, what is that? The flip of that is yeah, half your grains processed. And now, why is that? When you read the report, what you find out is the reason they have to put those in is because their diet without refined fortified grains, like fortified flours and cereal products, is nutritionally deficient. Hmm. And you can't fortify a whole food. So if you leave it just whole grains, you won't get all the, the, the nutrients you need. And that's because they don't allow enough animal products in the diet. The animal products are where all the nutrients are. Not all of them. <laughs> I mean, you can get nutrients from plants. You just can't get everything you need from plants. Plants are dangerously deficient in specific nutrients. You have to eat some animal foods or you have to supplement. And nobody says that. Everybody says it's great to remove animal foods from your diet. Well, okay, but then you're going to have to replace B12, the essential fatty acids, vitamin K2. You're going to be at higher risk for iron deficiency. You're going to be at higher risk for zinc deficiency. Um, it's just, there are many nutrients you cannot easily get from a plant-based diet and some which you can't get at all, like B12. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows you have to replace B12, but nobody knows about all of the other nutrients which you will be at, at risk for being deficient in. So it, it's important. That, I mean, these downfalls, these risks of a plant-based diet are minimized Um because uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I'll just say I don't know why. But they, it's it. I have almost every patient I've ever consulted with, including in college environments, are loaded with people who are interested in following a plant-based diet for compassionate reasons, and I completely understand that. But almost I, I can't remember actually even a single patient student that I ever consulted with who was supplementing properly. Many of them didn't even supplement B twelve. Mm -hmm. So this is dangerous for the brain, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. I, um, one of my recent interviews was with Lily Nichols, who is a uh, dietitian focused on prenatal nutrition. <clears throat> and she, we talked a lot about B12 and its impact perinatally and in breastfeeding and uh, needing to actually have probably more than the recommended amounts to support those processes, which was quite interesting. Lily is brilliant, an amazing resource. Um, she she has done her homework and she's absolutely exceptionally exceptionally intelligent about these things. Yeah, I found her fascinating to talk to. It's one of the best things about having a podcast is you get to sit down and talk with people like you and ask your own questions. <laughs> so much better than just listening to somebody else's. Um, so before we wrap up, are there any sort of like um, kind of last tips or take-home points that you would want to leave people with? Yes. Uh, I really want to talk about the medications for just a minute. So one sure. of the things I spend a lot of time in my consulting work doing uh, with, with clinicians as, as well as patients is helping people understand how low-carbohydrate diets can affect psychiatric medications. Mm -hmm. And I have 
and, and uh, because it's a long topic, I'm just going to refer people to a free article. Um, uh, there are two ways you can read it, either on Psychology Today or on the Diet Doctor website. I have an article called Ketogenic Diets and Psychiatric Medications um, to help clinicians and patients understand what they need to know before they start a ketogenic diet if they're taking psychiatric medications. And um, so I'm hoping that that's helpful to a lot of, to, to, to people um, because the ketogenic diet is, has, is, a, is, has, is a powerful metabolic intervention. And in the first few days, uh, first week really, um, the body chemistry shifts dramatically in very, very healthy ways. This is not an unhealthy shift that's taking place, but if you're taking medications, it can affect the levels of those medications. And if you have a psychiatric disorder, the transition to a ketogenic diet, even if you're not taking medications, can in some cases temporarily worsen your mood while your, while your brain shifts over from learning how to burn fat after many years of burning carbohydrates. So it's important to know these things before you change your diet. But I don't want that to discourage people. I want it just to educate people so that they will, they will not set themselves up for failure. Um, so some of the clinicians I work with, like if they've run into a tough case and they need some help, you know, uh, transitioning somebody that has a certain medication combination, I can help with that. But almost everything you need to know um, is in that article so that hopefully it'll help more people be successful and not have to um, feel discouraged. And I'll link to that in the show notes and the blog post. Okay, great. So people can find it. Um, and can you let us know where people can find you if they want more information from you? Oh, sure. So, so I write uh, frequently for Psychology Today. All of those articles are free. I write specifically about nutrition and mental health there. Um, on my own website, which is Diagnosis Diet, I write about lots of different types of things, foods, grains, fruits, um, fibromyalgia, all kinds of different migraines, all kinds of things. Um, and uh, hypothyroidism, just whatever I became interested in along the way. Um, and, and I'm also very active on social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Georgia Ede, MD. My last name is spelled E-D-E. Uh, so um, I, I try to answer quick questions there as well. Um, and I speak a lot at conferences, low carb and other types of nutrition conferences around the world. So hopefully maybe I'll meet some people in person at, uh, future conferences. I'll be at low carb Denver next year. Um, and also keto live in Switzerland next year and other places to be determined. But, um, it's, uh, I, I really would encourage fellow physicians to, uh, if you haven't already, to learn a little bit more about nutrition so because it's such a powerful intervention for patients and it really changes how you feel about your practice to be getting at root causes rather than patching things up with medications and then having to deal with the side effects of those medications um, for the rest of the, the time that you're working with that patient. So um, I think it's at the frontier that all of us, I wish, I hope that a lot more doctors will, you know, um, include more and more of, of, of the, this information, not just about mental health, but of general physical health in their practices. It just, it feels so much better to practice this way. And, and you, you can't get everybody off medications. Some people will still need medications if they're, even if their diet is perfect, whatever that means, 
some people may have some damage that will continue to require medication, and it's important to keep that in mind as well, that that's not a failure. That doesn't mean that there's been a failure on the part of the physician or on the part of the patient. It's just that, you know, some of us will continue to, to need medication support, and that's okay. Yeah, and I think I think those are great points, and I 100% agree that some of the most satisfying encounters I have are with patients when we're working on this stuff and they're able to take their the control back of their health, which is so inspiring to see. I think too, when you're starting out though, a piece that we get so, you know, eager to help, right? <clears throat> but you have, we also have to recognize that some patients, even when presented with the option and the evidence and everything will still make a choice to choose to continue their same diet and stay on medications. Um, and I know I struggled with that sometimes. Thank you for saying that, Siobhan, because it's exactly right. And so it's up to the person, you know, you meet them where they're at, you give them information if they're open to hearing it, and that's it. Like that's, it's up to them what to do with that information. We do have choices and medications are available. Um, if, that's, if that's how people, if, if that's the way that people want to go, um, I 100% support them in that. And for many, many years, I practiced combination medications and nutrition. And I would say that, the, you know, um, I would say maybe two thirds to three quarters of my patients chose the medication route and I, no judgment there, no judgment. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And it's, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about all the different influencers, but like um, there's so many different things that can influence whether a person is at a position in their life that they can engage in dietary change. Um, and a lot of them, when you're in a normal office visit, like I'm thinking, you know, family practice office visits where we're often limited in time, you, it's often that you probably don't know about a lot of those influencers. Um, That's exactly right. And, and you never know, like people do change over time and they can become more, you know, it's all about stages of change, right? Are you pre-contemplative? Are you contemplative? Are you ready to change? And that can change over time. And so as you build your relationship with, with somebody you're working with, um, in the beginning, they might not be interested in diet, but maybe a year later they are for some reason. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, then, and then, you know, there, there may be an opening there to, you know, for, for something new to, to happen. Um, uh, th this series of posts I wrote for the Diet Doctor website, uh, which is all about low-carbon mental health, one of the things that I wrote in those articles is, you know, before you change your diet, assess your support system and, and, and assess your own motive, your own level of motivation because, and write down how you're feeling now and what your goals are. So you don't lose sight of them. Like all this psychological preparation is, it's not just about changing your diet. If it were that easy, like you and I said before, everybody would have done it already. Right. Yeah. Um, hard. Changing diet is really hard. Um, but it's, the, the potential benefits are just phenomenal. Excellent. I think that's a fantastic place to end. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Me too, Siobhan. Thank you for your excellent questions and your experience clearly shines through because you know exactly what people are up against. Um, and uh, it, and, and uh, it, thanks for the work that you do. Oh yeah, thank you. So tons of good information there and lots of really good little tidbits. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, head over to the blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes, or send me an email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. 
as always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to hit the subscribe button so you get all the new content as soon as I release it. And also, if you could share it with other friends or people that you think might be benefit from it and leave a review or a rating on iTunes, it really helps the podcast get found. All right, have a fantastic week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.